Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Brianna Titone. In 2018, Brianna was elected to the Colorado General Assembly, making her the first openly transgender state legislator in Colorado and one of the first in the nation. Her story and her successes are uniquely American, and I'm so excited to share her with you. In the state of Pennsylvania, there's never been an elected transgender politician yet. I am and if elected, the, first the first transgender person realize that I'm a first transgender woman to be running when for When I decided to like it, I started seeing all over, over the internet that J.C. Wyatt transgender is running for governor. They title me. It's one word where we all come from. It's how somebody can represent us. It's absolutely critical for you to have people standing in front of them that are going to fight to fight for them. That's why I'm running. Minneapolis is also making national headlines for electing two openly transgender candidates to the city council. We all really have the same goals. We just have different ways of trying to get to those goals. I'm Brianna Titone, and I'm running for Colorado House District 27. So, Brianna, you and I met on Twitter, and I'm always... Uh, taken by how tirelessly you work. It seems like you don't sleep. Do you sleep? <laughs> you know, seven seven hours. Oh, that's usually. pretty good. That's yeah. better than me. How much you share on social media, I also think is really important. So thank you yeah. for all you do. I really uh, appreciate it. Let's start at the beginning. Can you give my listeners a little bit more about your background? You grew up in New York, right? Yeah. Uh, from a small town in upstate New York in the Catskill area, class of about 125 students in my high school. So everybody knew everybody's business all the time. And for me, I was kind of someone who liked to not be the center of attention. I wanted to be uh, blend in because, you know, I was a secret crossdresser. And that was something I could never let anybody know in a small town, especially in the early 90s, because that wasn't something anybody knew about or did. Uh, so I. How did you? How did you figure out that's something that felt good for you? Cross dressing. Was it your mom's clothes? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of just experimentation, and you know, just felt right. And I mm. just wanted to. I wanted to be a girl, but I just it just didn't. Nothing matched up with me to, mm-hmm. to have that. And I didn't have any role models or anything. I had the Phil Donahue show, and you know, a couple episodes that I saw about you know, transgender people and, and it wasn't really 
put in a good light, but it was very intriguing to me. And that was one of the first things I remember mm. uh, of, of my childhood, of, of anything I really saw about that. Because I liked girls and the, the guests on the show were transgender women who were married to women. Right. And I was like, oh, it, was just, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it, it resonated with me. It's funny. I wonder how many people watched the Phil Donahue show and got some sort of reflection of who they are from watching. Because he was great at bringing on guests that we had not always seen in society. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he did it to be a freak show, kind of like the Jerry Springer uh, ended up doing. But the audience, you know, didn't really always take to those people very friendly. But it was intriguing to me, and it was always a thought I had in my head. But not having any other role models or any exposure to that and no internet, of course, at the time, I just kind of... Were your parents supportive? They found out about me uh, because I got careless. Uh, I was very good at hiding it. And they found out. Did you want to be found out? No, I did not. I was mortified. I mean, the sense of like your heart wanting to jump out of your chest of embarrassment. and I think everyone could relate to that feeling of being found out about something. Yeah, it it was a horrible feeling. And, you know, they were calm and, you know, they confronted me about it very nicely. And they said, you know... Would you like to see a therapist? I mean, can we talk about it? And I mean, I what other choice did I have? So we did, and I talked to a therapist about it. And from what I remember of the conversation, it was just, oh, this is just a phase. You know, don't worry about it. So once I walked in to the first therapist, it was essentially him saying, we don't really have the tools to help you. A few months more passed, and I walk into another therapist's office, and she also, within the first few minutes, just said, that sounds like it's a really tough thing, but I actually don't have the, the skill to help you or the tools to help you. Six months later, I found myself in another therapist's office. This time, it was actually after a suicide attempt. And he also said, this is a really tough thing, but we don't have the tools to help you. At that point, I transitioned socially for a year. So it was a really kind of petrifying experience for me to, to just sort of transition alone. And I often wonder what would happen if I walked into that first therapist's office and said, I'm trans, and they just said, that's great, let's, let's see what we can do for you. You know, they didn't really know a lot about that kind of stuff back then. And especially in a rural part of New York, the therapists really weren't going to know a lot about it. If I went to New York City and, and saw a therapist there, they might have some more information mm-hmm. about it and maybe better trained in that. How old were you at this point? Uh, I think I was probably 13. I was so young. Yeah. And just because of the sheer embarrassment, I just went outside and like I burned everything that I had because I was just like, I can't do this. What society was telling me is that it was wrong. Right. And also you wanted to feel like you were fitting in in school and you wanted to sort of disappear, as you said before. And yet how you felt was other than. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I just thought that I just, if I got rid of all the stuff and I didn't have it anymore, I wouldn't want it to be part of my life anymore. And, you know, that didn't last very long. And, you know, I was ordering things on the Victoria's Secret catalog you know, and, and making sure I got the mail that day when it came. I mean, it was, 
very stealthy at hiding it. And I continued to hide it from them. And they didn't know that I was still doing it until I really came out to them as a trans person in my 30s. So I kept it from them throughout college. And wow. Did you just not have these conversations with them? No, I would just avoid it. And you hear a lot of other stories from people about losing their family and losing their friends when they come out. And yeah. I didn't want that. The hardest thing I've ever had to do was come out to my family and friends. Her daughter is now 13. What does she call she, you? She calls me dad sometimes. My daughter and I do a lot of hiking. Hiking, history, and football are among her favorite things. Westbrook can throw a football nearly 60 yards and throw down with the guys at work. It is that competitive spirit that's fueling her fight in the race for Washington. I've been at the lowest points of society and worked my way up to where I'm at now. Everything that I've been through gives me a certain edge that representatives typically don't have. I first didn't feel connected with who I was when I was about five years old. So if I just didn't tell anybody, I wouldn't have to worry about it. But eventually, I came out to the world and I had no choice. So I just kind of crossed my fingers. I think about parenting and how my mom used to say this thing to me, which was, don't send me in there blind. Meaning, if something's going on, I need to hear from you, not mm -hmm. from someone else. And I think that there's got to be a point of relief that happens when you know that someone's hiding something, because parents know everything, and then being able to discuss it in a way that even for better or for worse, even if you decided at that point, you know what, I can't be a part of this because the way in which you see me is destructive, but to at least have the conversation. Yeah. Right? Were your yeah. parents relieved? Yeah, they were. They said, well, we, we thought you stopped doing that. <laughs> uh, and I was like, nope, I just got better at hiding it because I didn't I didn't want to bring up that probably horror that they felt too. And, and we don't really talk about it even still. It's kind of just something we don't, we don't go there anymore. We just kind of exist as people doing our own things. And I, I was reading your bio and I was like, this person has been through so much and you've taken so many different paths in your life. So if for you, those of you that don't know about Brianna, she was a volunteer firefighter. Yep. What did you learn about that experience? So uh, I joined up at 16 as a junior firefighter. And junior firefighter basically rolls up the hoses and gets folds the tarps and gets, you know, helps out. And uh, I got to take a lot of classes uh, at the county, all of the fire training classes that, that were available. And then when I turned 18, then I was actually able to put the wet stuff on the red stuff. That's what we used to say. Wow. And, and then you were also, uh, you studied geology. Mm -hmm. I was a physics and electrical engineering double major first. Then I was just a physics major. And then I went back to the department chairs to say, what else have you got to offer? And geology was great for me because it incorporates all the sciences. And I really like science. So I ended up switching to geology major. And then... I decided that I had enough credits to get a physics degree, too. So I got the physics degree and the geology degree and a minor in math. What did you study in grad school? I, I got a master's degree in geochemistry. You're amazing. And then you previously worked as a mining consultant. Mm -hmm. What is that? 
Well, what I did, um, I first started out as an environmental consultant doing cleanup work and different projects, uh, chasing plumes around and things. And you know, then just chasing some plumes. Chasing plumes, <laughs> making sure the world's a cleaner place. And so I got bored of that because I wasn't going anywhere in that company. So that's when I decided I was going to come to find a new job or go back to school. And I was approached by a professor at Tulane to go to Tulane and said, hey, get your PhD down here. I would love to have you. And I was accepted to go down there to get my PhD. And then I also got a job offer in Denver to work at a mining consulting company. So I had- So what year is this? This was in 2008. And it was a really tough decision to make because ultimately I always wanted to be a professor, but it was like either being down in New Orleans or being up the mountains and- I like the mountains, so I chose to be in Denver. I like school. Right. I mean, I was in school for eight years of higher education before that, and then I took a little bit of a break for work, but I always have that yearning to want to learn more. Where do you think you got that from? Do you think there was a teacher in your life that instilled that in you? Do you think that's innately part of who you are? I think it was probably my grandfather. He was a real, he was a kind of a go-getter and a do-everything kind of guy. He, he was an immigrant from Sicily. He was a hard worker and he worked himself up to owning a business and then having a bakery. And through his success, he would always go traveling and learning about new cultures. And he always had lots of stories. And I always would love to listen to all of his stories. And he was a wealth of knowledge. And I was just a curious kid who really just wanted to know everything. And I had a source of someone to tell me a lot of things. So Yeah, that's nice. Especially generationally, too. As a mom, actor, designer, author, activist, and business owner, <laughs> I know what it's like to be busy and just how distracting uncomfortable clothes can be. And that's why I love Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants. These pants look great anywhere I go, and they are so comfortable. Seriously, I look professional enough for any meeting I need to go to, but feel like I'm in my PJs. It's the best of both worlds. Whatever your style, Beta Brand has the pants to match. Choose from dozens of colors, patterns, cuts, and styles like boot cut, straight leg, skinny, cropped, and more. They even have a pair with eight, yes, eight, pockets. <laughs> and now they also offer premium denim with the same flexibility and comfort as yoga pants. Right now, our listeners can get 20% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A. That is 20% off your first order at betabrand.com slash Alyssa. Millions of women agree that these are the most comfortable pants that you'll ever wear. Go to betabrand.com slash Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, for 20% off. So with this background, I'm trying to figure out how you got into politics. So as a mining consultant, I traveled all over the world uh, to different projects, doing mostly field work all over the place. And that wasn't really the path I really wanted to go down. And, and we have to rewind a little bit on September 11, 2001, being a firefighter at that time, mm. volunteer firefighter, mm. seeing 
the attack on the World Trade Center was a very impactful thing to me because yeah. a lot of first responders uh, lost their lives. Right. And, you know, almost joining the military a couple times, I, I felt patriotic to want to serve and to do things for people. It was kind of just what I've always done uh, as a volunteer firefighter. Just, I wanted, I want to help people. I want to do something. And I could never commit to doing the military, but I thought that I might be able to join the FBI. And I thought that I had a good enough path and stayed out of trouble and stayed out of drugs and didn't do any of that stuff. And that's what I was going to do is actually be an FBI special agent and, and help make sure that that kind of thing never happened again. So I put in my application and hoped for the best. And they got back to me and said, you know, we think that you're a highly competitive candidate because of all the backgrounds wow. that I had, all the degrees and stuff. I hadn't finished my second master's degree at that time yet, but all of the work that I had done, all the experience really added up to a good possible agent. So the process is really long. You have to do first interviews and then more interviews and tests and physical tests. And it's a very long drawn out process. And I was trying to do this while I was going to work. Right. And hard. The, the first meeting that I had with the FBI, I was supposed to leave on a trip to go to the Philippines. And I was been waiting for this meeting for the FBI for a long time. And it was the day I was supposed to leave. So as an honest person who has a hard time making up things that are true, I told my boss, I said, can I postpone this trip like one day just because I have this really important thing? Right. And they're like, well, you really can't. We have to, we have to stay on the schedule. And I'm like, well, what's so important? And I'm like, oh, why are you asking me this? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to get in the FBI and they're at the test that day. And they didn't let me do it. I had to reschedule the FBI. Test, Wait, so which they how did. old are you at this point? I think I was like 34 or something like that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you could appreciate how colorful your background is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. So I didn't end up getting in the FBI ultimately because I got too old and you get too old at 37. So. I got through all of the stuff, like almost completely through. But if you turn 37 before you get into the academy, you're done. That's it. So if you have aspirations to get in the FBI, kids, do start it, early. Do it, do it, yeah. Start early. <laughs> but it was kind of devastating for me at that point. I really wanted to, to do that job. And I was willing to put that hard work in to get there and then put the hard work in to become the agent and graduate and do that work and go out on, on the streets and have people shoot at me for the greater good of the people. That's what I wanted to do. And I was sure I was going to do that. Hmm. They told me I was competitive. They told me I had. Right, of course. Would you say that was the first major disappointment that you've had? That, that was one of the biggest ones. And, and on my 37th birthday, I was on a work project in Mexico by myself Nobody else was around to even have a margarita with me. And and as I sat there in this restaurant at the hotel, I was just crying about it because that was 
it was a dream that I wanted to make happen and it and it didn't come true mm. and I worked so hard for it. And that was a turning point for me. And I said, well, I don't know what to do with my life now. What can I do? And at that point, I decided that it was time to look into myself. Were you out as a transgender woman yet? I wasn't. And and I was planning on keeping that from the FBI somehow too. Right. And right. I don't know if I would have been successful in doing so. But that's when I really started to go down the path of actually taking inventory into myself and yeah. figuring out yeah. what it is that I've been hiding from myself because I considered myself to be a crossdresser because that was better than being a trans person because being a trans person means all of these things are going to become unavailable to you. And really, so you were conscious enough to know that. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at how, you know, the history of, of trans people being treated throughout time. It's never been good. Amy Stevens, she was that transgender woman who worked at a funeral home in Michigan. She told us yesterday just how she was fired uh, from her job, uh, which she had for six years, and how it impacted her life. Take a look. You were uh, a professional at this funeral home in Michigan for years. You had been a faithful employee. Um, You liked your colleagues. Yes. You were praised by your boss. Yes. And then there was that day in 2013 when you wrote a letter. Tell us about that that experience. I'd basically been living two lives, and it got to the point of being nearly impossible to keep doing that, and I almost took my own life. But in that instant, I made the decision that I liked me too much and that I chose to live instead, and that's when I started writing the letter. And it took maybe six to eight months to come up with a version that I was happy with that explained what was going on in my life and where I was at and what I needed to do. When I gave him the letter, he read it and folded it up and put it in his pocket and said, I'll have to think about it. Well, then two weeks later, he came back, handed me a letter that was dismissing me that they didn't need me anymore. Now the Supreme Court is being asked by the Trump administration to roll back the clock and hold that it is perfectly legal to fire someone because they are transgender. When we were kids, if anybody thought there was a trans person there, they were always making fun of them. And I had to sit there and go along with that to to not be outed myself, to think that they're, why aren't you making fun of them too? Which was definitely your own projection, right? Of like, this is what I need to do to... To fit in. Yeah. yeah. So, and so I, much of growing up is this feeling of that you have to fit into something. And I don't know that there's anyone that ever completely feels that they do. Yeah. No, and, and I think we carry that with us, right, mm-hmm. through, our, through our lives and those disappointments. And there's almost like a self-loathing that happens when you do not become fully embracing of who you are. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. But it's good that you had that disappointment, I think, because you were probably able to then take inventory and unpack who you were, what that meant, and what you were going to do to be that person. Were you still in therapy? Have you been in therapy your whole life or just in your Uh, On and off. Yeah. Because many times I've talked to therapists about, you know, the feelings I had and even the therapist would say, you know, oh, there's 
no, you're not trans. You know, it's like they just cause because they didn't know. You, if because you're not talking to a, a therapist who has experience with that, they don't really know. Do you think that still goes on? Yeah, absolutely. How do yeah. we fix that? Well, I mean, when any time someone asks me about, you know, a therapist that they might want to talk to, I tell them to go to the organizations that do LGBT stuff and they have a list of people that specialize talk to people about mm. it cuz it's important that you do that because if you're not talking to the right person and they have no experience in it they're probably right. not going to understand that's true with all therapy i think yeah yeah you go to someone with experience in it cuz they have a better look at it and and can tell you more truthfully whether yes I believe you are because I have experience talking to all these other people as opposed to someone who's hearing it for the first time. Do you find that you're very conscious of ageism because of that disappointment you felt being too old at 34? 37. Or 37? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I still feel like I would still be a good agent if I was in there today. Of course you would. No matter what. I have no doubt in that. I think ageism is a real thing, though, that we don't really talk about enough. And I think it's definitely in my mind more because we're looking at what, you know, Bernie and his heart attack and Joe and Elizabeth Warren and so much of the younger candidates platform is attacking the older candidates Mm -hmm. based on a generational difference. And I just think it's really, it's super hard to see. And, And maybe I'm more conscious of it because everyone says in my business after 40 you don't have a career right so ageism is just it's something that i think is as dangerous as all the other isms yeah i mean you know we should judge people by what they bring to the table and that's what i did when i was running my race was to tell people what i bring to the table uh, despite my identity and i think you know identity and ageism kind of are go hand in hand yeah so, okay, so you had this disappointment. Yeah. You decide, I'm going to figure out who I am, what I want to do. What was the first step in doing that for you? Well, the first step was to uh, really go to a place where I could talk to people that would know how I felt inside. So I went to what was called the Gender Identity Center in Colorado, and they're under a different name now. But that was specifically a group of people that was run by trans people and LGBT people that had support groups and all of these different resources that you could talk to people and kind of figure it all out. And and that was... Uh, that must have been amazing. It was, it was great because I had been avoiding talking to people like me for a long time. Why? Because the realization of... Oh my God. If you I'm, just weren't if I, ready to face. If I'm trans, what is this going to mean for me? Am I ever going to work again right. in this field? Uh, you know, am I going to lose all these opportunities? And it changes your life and, and changes the trajectory of your life. Of course. And, I mean, I had a lot of privilege in my life, whether I realized it or not. And I really didn't until I lost it all when I, when I came out. But that's really interesting. But I realized it enough that I knew that if I became trans, then I wouldn't have a lot of opportunities and things that I wanted to do in life wouldn't be there. And was I prepared for that? Because I didn't feel like being trans, I would be able to be an FBI special agent. I don't think any, I don't think there's a trans special agent that I've ever heard about. So what else can I not do? Right. Because I 
Because I'm so it became not about what you were capable of doing. It became about what you couldn't do. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are uh, feel the same way, and and some come out later in life because you get into a routine of doing the things you do, and you know that if I change this, I could instantly lose my job. Right. And you know that that kind of thing still happens today, and people lose their job for being trans. Once I finally realized that I'm going to come out, I'm going to figure this out. I was in the process at the same time of going back to school to get another degree in in computer programming. So I got a master's degree in information communication technology because I knew that if I was to come out, I wouldn't be able to do that field work and go to all these different countries and work with these roughneck drillers and, you know, before having to play along with all of their sexist and racist jokes because I have to get along with them and get the work done. Right. I would be the joke and they wouldn't take me seriously. I was working for myself at the time. That's smart. And you were I, smart. And if I can't, you were trying I can't to get work, yeah. I, I, what am I supposed to do? So changing careers was, was an option that I thought was a better way to go. So I was planning to get into a different field in software. And then once I did that, that's when I realized that I was part of a new group of people to me, the LGBT community, and they weren't doing so well when it comes to acceptance and discrimination and things like that. And Meaning what? Well, look at the policies that the Trump administration is imposing on, right. on the LGBT community. Look at all of the states that don't protect the LGBT community. Now to another controversial move announced by the White House, this time about transgender people serving the military. The Trump administration is sparking backlash for its policies impacting the transgender community. On Thursday, the Justice Department filed a brief to the Supreme Court arguing federal law does not protect transgender workers from certain types of discrimination. It has been a busy week as far as politics go, starting with the ban of transgender people in the military. Now, the president took to Twitter to announce the decision, not only bypassing the media, but his own military. It's a major reversal of an Obama-era policy which lifted the ban on transgender service members, potentially thousands of transgender troops. The move came as House Republicans were trying to pass a spending bill, but an internal fight over funds to pay for medical care of transgender troops, including sexual reassignment surgeries, threatened to kill the deal. Since the announcement, people have taken to the streets to protest, like in San Francisco. There's a lot of places in the United States and around the world that don't accept us. So when I became part of this group, I'm the same person who wanted to be an FBI special agent and put my life on the line to help people. So why would I not do the same sort of thing in my life to help people as a person, as part of that new community? So I started to to do uh, lobby days with the LGBT organization. First time I ever went to the Capitol in Denver was like three or four years ago and talked to my legislator and my legislator wouldn't talk to me because they were conservative and they didn't care about that issue. And that really got me going in, in the activism area. And then the Women's March happened and all of these things. And I, I just became a fighter for people in that activism space. 
And when the Jefferson County Democrats chair told me, you know, you should run for office. Hmm. And I was like... Had you ever thought about it before? No, not really. Did you consider yourself a community organizer at that point? No, No? not really. I I was just, you know, someone who showed up and... Fought for injustices that you saw. was part of it and was standing shoulder to shoulder with the people on a variety of issues. And it didn't matter whether it was immigrants' rights issues. So this is after 2016, the 2016 election? Yeah. I started really getting involved in 2015 into 2016. So 2016 really got me Yeah, I bet. I bet. Especially with the policies that, that, you know, and the lies about supporting the LGBT community. And, you know, so I was on a tear at that point. So when I was asked to run for office, I was like, how am I supposed to win? No one's ever elected a transgender person to anything in Colorado. And, you know, there's been a few people that have been elected at that point in city council races and things like that in some in some places. And this was before 2017 when Danica Rome won. Right. ever been singled out, who's ever been the misfit, who's ever been the kid in the corner, who's ever needed someone to stand up for when they didn't have a voice of their own, this one's for you. This election has to prove nationwide that discrimination is a disqualifier. So she had planted the seed for me to run for had office. You met, had you met her? No. No, I hadn't. I... I heard about her and I kind of was following her a little bit and I was like I don't I don't know like nobody's done this before and I don't know if anyone can take me seriously and my race in my district I live in a very conservative place you do historically very conservative lots and lots of churches it was drawn to be a republican district it was Always held by Republicans since Did you it was seek out any political strategist to even figure out if this was feasible, or did you just dive right in? Well, I, I did a little research myself, and I looked at the 2016 election, and I said, who won the district? Was it Hillary or was it Trump? And in my district, which has historically been very conservative— Hillary won by a little smidge. So and you thought that that was enough of a, yep. a of a window of opportunity. Yep. Bless you. And I believe that nobody else did. Right. Everybody else, all the all the experts, you know, viewed me as the three-legged horse in the horse race. That there was no chance I was ever going to win in a million years because even a a democrat who's not a trans person doesn't have any business winning in that district because the last election and the election before that were like the Republican won by 14%. Did you have any sort of close ally where you were discussing this possibility for yourself with that said to you, you should go for it or? It was the the chair of the party. Her name is Cheryl Cheney. She kind of twisted my arm a little bit and gave me the tools to to do it. And she kind of Twisted, you have to have your arm twisted a little bit to run for office. Well, because I could imagine that you 
totally understood the microscope that you would be under and the skepticism that people had. Did you have to prepare yourself for it? Did you sit down and say, okay, this is what this is going to entail and I know this is going to be difficult? Or did you go in completely optimistic? Well, I knew I knew we were going to work hard. We had to work hard to do it. And campaigns are grueling. Yes. And and the first thing I did was reach out to Danica Rome because when she won, that was the the light bulb moment that went on in my head to say, All right. I can do this. Somebody else did this. The ice is broken. And I'm gonna also poke through the ice too and and reach the surface. So I reached out to her immediately and said, Hey, I'm thinking about running for office. And you know, she was very cautious about helping other people right away, rightfully so, because you know, there were a lot of people came out of the woodwork to run for office in the 2018 election as well. But, you know, she she pretty much just said, like, I'm not endorsing anybody, but you know. Knocking on doors is really important. Know what your district wants. So, you know, she gave me a little bit of advice. And then uh, she said, check out a couple organizations that I should go get training from. And so I did. And I started getting training through Emerge. It's an organization that trains women to run for office. And that's all they do. Democratic women to run for office. They do a whole training, a six-month training thing where you go every weekend and you learn how to fundraise and how to message and how to storytell and all the different things that you do. So I took that. And then I also did another program through the Victory Fund. And they do an intensive like three-day thing. And that's only for LGBT candidates. So I took that as well. And they teach a little bit more of a perspective about how to run when you're attacked for being LGBT, which often happens. So I took both of those Did you face that? Uh, you know, oddly, I didn't. But you were prepared. I was prepared. Uh, and the the reason why was because I was running against the incumbent originally in my district. And by the time we got to the primary, it was the first year that unaffiliated voters could vote in the primary. So we didn't know what was going to happen. Was gonna happen. Right. I ended up with 11% more votes than the incumbent had. Some people speculate that that's why he went to go run for lieutenant governor because he saw the writing on the wall. Interesting. But that's conjecture. <laughs> I, I haven't heard it from him. But so then they had a vacancy committee and they picked someone else to run against me in the race. I'm sure I wasn't there, but I'm <laughs> sure that they told her when she got the vacancy committee that she was going to be the next representative in the district because there's no way you're going to lose right. to any transgender person in this district. It's right. never going to happen. And at this point, are you like, because you've felt great disappointment before, at this point, are you concerned that you're going to lose and what that's going to do to you? Or are you like, well, I've felt that before and I've, I've gotten through it, so I know I'm going to be okay? You know, losing and having disappointment is a is a character builder. It helps me to fail every once in a while because that just gets me to work harder for the next thing. And we knew that if we knocked on the doors and we did all the stuff and we kept a good message that we could win people over. My district has a 74% voter turnout rate, which... 
I mean, anybody who knows anything about elections, like if you're lucky to get 50%, That's you're in pretty good, yeah. you're pretty good shape. Everybody votes in my district. So I can't find more people to vote for me. You know, I can't do right, registration right. stuff. I need people to vote for me. Right. People that That's would already it. show up at the polls, you needed them to vote for I you. I need to win them over. I hired a campaign manager, a field organizer, and a dedicated field. How many doors did you operation. knock on? It was around 40,000, somewhere in there. I said, you know, I, I want to do what's right for the district. And when I make a vote, you, you may or may not like it. But that's because I'm trying to do what the district wants. And you will be disappointed sometimes. But I offer my my ear for you to tell me what's my door is always open why i voted a certain way and i will explain that to you and i will allow you to get mad at me if you want but that's what i'm offering for you i'm gonna try to do my very best and offer my my availability to you so how long was the campaign in its entirety before you were elected i started my Real campaign in December of 2017. So I had about 13, well, about 12 months. And while I was doing that, I was working a full-time job five days a week. I was finishing my master's degree and taking those training courses. So I was multitasking a lot of different things. What do you think was the biggest obstacle for you? The biggest obstacle was raising money. That was the hardest thing for me because I was always out of town when I was working. So I didn't really know anybody. Right. And what a drag. That part of the campaigning is so hard on people because you're constantly having to ask for money. Yeah. That's just uncomfortable to begin with. Yeah. I don't know. I would think that that would be one of the hardest parts. It is. And it is for most people. Yeah. But I was the person that was being told, don't give her money. She's never going to win. Like people were saying right. that. Right. You had so much stacked against you. So I would ask people and they're like, well, I don't know. I guess I give you 50 bucks or something. And our campaign finance limits only allow $400. So I can't even ask for a lot. And to run a campaign usually t- costs about $100,000. So even if at a $400 max level, you're asking a lot of people for money and relying on that. We, we have some of the most strict campaign finance rules in the whole country in Colorado. So it's really, really tough to raise money. So uh, your district last had a Democrat representative in 2010. Is that right? Yeah. So how do you think you were able to shift voters? I think it was a little bit of what I had to offer and partly the sentiment overall in politics. The Trump administration and all the the cronyism and everything that was going on was really just saying like, I don't want to elect a Republican. I don't trust them. I'm going to vote for a Democrat. And some people, that's what they said. Some people I talked to who were lifelong Republicans said, forget it. I'm not voting for them anymore. They don't represent me anymore. I'm going to try a Democrat this time. 
But I brought a lot to the table. Of course. And, and I told people about that. And I didn't focus on being trans. I focused on my skills and my background and what I was going to offer and transparency and accountability and availability and all the things that people want to see in a public official. And some people later on said, oh, I didn't know you were trans. I'm like, well, good. Yeah, that that shouldn't matter. Exactly. I like to ask this question of our elected officials. Is there an issue that keeps you up at night that we're facing right now? Because there's so there's so much to be upset about. There's so much to fight for. There's so much to fight against. Yeah. What issues are important to you right now? Well, uh, Colorado is really struggling with the suicide rate. We are number seven in suicide rate in the country. Why do you think that is? I keep asking that question too. And but is it suicide by to- gun? Partly. That's one one of the reasons. How are your gun laws? They could be better. We have a lot of very libertarian mm-hmm. sentiments in, Cal- mm-hmm. in Colorado. And one of our members of the House, his son was a victim of the Aurora shooting, mm. Tom Sullivan. And that's been his mission since he got into the legislature is to tighten up gun legislation. And a lot of other people are also working on several gun legislation issues in response to the STEM shooting and the Parkland shooting. Have you seen the state change with the legalization of marijuana, cannabis? Well, there's been growth. Uh, A lot of growth is happening in Colorado. I think it's partly for that, but a lot of other states are also legalizing marijuana too. So I don't think it's that. I think the reason why is Colorado economies are is really good. We have a lot of good high-tech jobs and we have great weather, except for wintertime, it gets a little chilly. And we're going to have a cold stretch coming up. We we have a lot of money to go around to a lot of different things. And a lot of people say that, oh, the marijuana money is supposed to be the, the savior for the state and give us all this extra money to yeah, that's do what the I, things we want. That's what I've heard. But it's... Not so much? The way that the law was structured, only certain money can go to certain things. And it's capped at that. So schools get a certain amount and then a certain amount goes to this, a certain amount goes to that. And then we do use the rest of it for other mental health things, but it's not enough. It's not. So what do you do about the suicide? What if you were to make a law, something that that would help those that need the help, what would it be? Well, I'm working on a couple of different things. One is around mental health first aid and in which gives people the knowledge about how to talk to people that have mental health issues. So if someone's suicidal or they have depression or other things or getting into substance abuse, it helps you talk to that person in a productive way that doesn't belittle that's smart. them. I can't believe that that's not a thing, right? It's yeah. one of those things where you go, oh yeah, of course. It's a life skill. And, yeah. and I took the class and it was just like, oh yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. And 
What did you call it? Mental health it's first called aid? called mental health first aid. I like and it. it's something that we're doing in Colorado, but only a certain percentage of people have it. And when you have it more ubiquitous in the community, the community members can help each other identify when there's a problem and then you can catch that person sooner before they get into a crisis. We all know how to heal ourselves when it comes to physical wounds, but what about those traumas that affect us mentally? Treating pain for the brain is possible with mental health first aid. So many people are afraid to get treatment and preparing someone with tools like this allows them to not be afraid. I said, Joe, how do you plan to kill yourself? I was very surprised that I said that. Joe isn't the worker's real name, but Jim's story is very real. His auto shop colleague answered his question with a specific plan for suicide. You know, Joe, how do you think this is going to make, you know, your parents feel? They were questions Jim brought to work with him from a mental health first aid course. The funny thing is that in my 20s, I always wanted to do something with my life that was going to do something great. And I, I, and I had a lot of ideas and a lot of creativity. And I thought I was going to invent something, maybe. But you knew that you were going to... I knew I had to do something. Mm. And, and That's I'm, pretty incredible. And I'm living that now. And I never expected this to be, to this. be how it, this was going to happen. So I'm living my dream come true, doing what I'm doing now. And that's why... I work so hard because it's necessary. <laughs> I would be doing a disservice to myself if I wasn't living my dream to the fullest I could do and making the most impact. So if you could just take a moment and talk to those kids right now, those kids that are scared about their future, those kids that are scared to show who they are to their parents, what would you say to them? from your own experience, from your own heart, from your own being. Yeah, it's okay to feel scared and to feel vulnerable, but there are a lot of people that are working really hard to make sure that that your life is going to be fruitful and safe and uh, a bright future for you. And know that no matter what, good will prevail and we will set up the world for you to grow and to be a part of it in no matter what way you want to be. Uh, because you have a right as a human being to be uh, whatever you want to be in life. You want to be a doctor or, or a state legislator or a congressperson or teacher or whatever you want to be. There's an opportunity there for you no matter how you feel inside and what your identity is or, or who you love. Uh, it doesn't matter because we're, we're fighting for you. Thank you so much for being a part of this, Brianna. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me on. People respect the fact that everyone needs to be treated fairly. A workplace in which transgender people are included is a workplace in which everyone is included. You should have a process in place. It's one thing to have policy, but you really need to have a process in place. You need to have a roadmap so you have a better understanding of what you need, the steps you need to take with this employee. Companies need to realize where they inadvertently out people, trans, gay, or, or anything, 
figure out what are these ways that we have biases, that we just assume everything's okay. We have to stop assuming. And if we're bringing people into a space to have a collective mission to work together, then we need to get to know people more individually and say, what is it that you need to succeed in this environment? When you are excluded, it hurts. It's, um, it's an awful feeling. It gets in the way of being creative, productive, um, innovative. Um, it's unhealthy. I, I need to go to work for a company that accepts me for who I am. Gender normativity impacts every single employee that you've ever worked with, every single human being that you've ever known. When you decide to come out, you don't come out in a vacuum. Everyone in your life, however small or big they are to you, they transition with you. I can bring my whole self and, and people respect me. You know, customers love me. They look for me. If there's anything that defines what it means to be an American, it's freedom. My friend Harvey Kay, who's a history professor and a bit of an FDR nerd, talks all the time about FDR's four freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. But with no disrespect to Harvey or to President Roosevelt, I'd add one more freedom to that list. The freedom to be yourself. Here's what those who would limit that freedom fail to understand even if you really, really, really don't like something about another person, unless it is actively harming you or others, it is none of your business. You can dislike transgender people all you want, although you're wrong and missing out on some truly amazing humans, but you can't be a freedom-loving American and try to make life harder for these people. You can't allow discrimination against LGBTQ people and pretend to be patriotic. The two things are mutually exclusive. Freedom requires us to accept things that make us uncomfortable, so long as they don't make us unsafe. And nobody's gender is making you unsafe. But our culture's hatred and rejection of these people sure endanger them. If we love freedom as much as we say we do, we need to do better. It's who we are as Americans. Thanks for listening. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word.